1995, two movies came out that depicted the lives of Scottish folk heroes. One, of course, was an Oscar winner starring and directed by Mel Gibson titled Braveheart, which, with many, many historical liberties taken, told the story of the great Scottish patriot William Wallace uh, from the late 13th and early 14th century. The other told the legend of the Scottish Robin Hood, Rob Roy, and that starred Liam Neeson. Of the two, Rob Roy is clear, my clear favorite. Um, part of that's just my, my personal preferences. The setting is, is more in my wheelhouse. It's early 18th century. Uh, the Highlanders are armed with muskets as well as swords. There's, there's talk of the, the colonies in Virginia and, and the Carolinas. And uh, it's just more my time period and, and more my kind of story. And that's in part uh, due to the screenwriter, Alan Sharp, who wrote one of my very favorite Western movies, uh, an Apache tale called Olzana's Raid, uh, back in the 1970s, I think 1972 that came out. And uh, love that movie. And uh, Sharp conceived of Rob Roy as a Western tale, which it certainly is. Um, it's certainly appropriate to treat it that way, or I, what I would call a, a frontier partisan's tale. So um, that movie has had more legs for me. Uh, I, I liked it best when it came out of the two. And, uh, and over the years, uh, I, I've watched it many, many times. And uh, Braveheart, not so much. I know that that's kind of a minority opinion, but, uh, but there it is. I love Rob Roy. And another one of the reasons for that is the, the magnificent soundtrack by uh, Carter Burwell, just an absolute classic soundtrack, orchestral with uh, obviously Celtic elements, and um, it's quite beautiful, and, and I listen to that uh, very frequently while I'm writing. So, to my way of thinking, the, the screenplay for Rob Roy and the performances, which are, are uniformly excellent uh, from Liam Neeson and uh, from Jessica Lange as, as Rob Roy's wife, Mary, and John Hurt as the, uh, they, they called him the Marque Marquess of Montrose, although in, in history he, he'd been elevated to the, to the dukedom. Um, and... Uh, and most of all, Tim Roth as the villainous Archibald Cunningham. Excellent performances across the board. And a fine job of taking a legend and giving it real screenplay structure so that you end up with a, with a very satisfying story that does fall out along the lines in a lot of ways, uh, along the lines of a, of a traditional Western except with flintlock muskets and, and uh, steel-bodied Scottish pistols and dirks and broadswords instead of, uh, instead of conventional frontier weaponry. So the way the, the story goes in Rob Roy the movie, and I guess it's incumbent upon me to state that there will be spoilers here, although I don't know that you can really spoil a 26-year-old movie, 
But if you haven't seen it, go see it, and by all means, and uh, and you know it's available through most of the streaming services, and it's if if you've missed it up to now, go uh, go remedy that error, and if you want to do that before you listen to the podcast, I completely understand. At any rate, the the way the story f- unfolds in in the movie, Rob Roy is the the chieftain of his McGregor clan, and uh, he is charged with protecting landowners' cattle from being raided by uh, by bandits, and uh, he's very good at that work. He's a cattle drover and uh, and businessman himself, all of which is is true to the history. And uh, we have a, a rather poignant scene where where Rob realizes that uh, no matter how hard he's he's working right now, he can't lift the people that he's charged with protecting out of out of poverty and uh, and illness uh, in the harsh Highland climate. So he borrows a thousand pound from James Graham, the the Marquess of Montrose. And uh, he's going to use that money to uh, to step up his game as a cattle trader. Again, this is all true to the history. Where the screenplay is inventive, not only on the history but also on the legend, is the in- introduction of of Archibald Cunningham, who is. Uh, a relative of Montrose's. It's not specified exactly what their their relationship is. Um, it's implied that that he's in serious debt and legal trouble in England and has had to flee north to the uh, the frontiers of Scotland, where Montrose is a is a major major lord and landowner. And uh, Tim Roth plays him beautifully um, as this uh, terrible rake and scoundrel. Um, he's quite effeminate in his manner and yet a lady killer and a deadly hand with the small sword. And Montrose is actually pitting him against Highlanders in, uh, in sort of gladiatorial sword fighting expositions. And, uh, in order to get himself out of debt, Cunningham hatches a nasty plot with Montrose's factor, Killarn, um, who was historically named Graham of Killarn. He was a real historical figure and was, in fact, the, the factor for, for the Duke of Montrose. Anyway, Cunningham hatches a, a plot with Killarn to, uh, to steal the thousand pound and, uh, and he murders Rob Roy's friend Alan McDonald and steals that that money. And uh, and Rob Roy comes to Montrose to to request time to to find McDonald and and the money and and um, and get the debt paid off or 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 just the money returned to Montrose and uh, and Montrose. Makes him an offer to uh, that he'll he'll uh, forgive the debt entirely if Rob Roy will testify that uh, that John Campbell, the Duke of Argyle, is a Jacobite, and uh, Rob, being an honorable man, refuses to give this 
false testimony and uh, and Rob is forced to flee and become an outlaw and uh, Montrose goes after him and uh, sends actually sends Archie Cunningham after him at the head of, of red red coated militia troops in order to uh, to break him and uh, and get the debt repaid. Of course, Montrose doesn't know that that Archie's actually stolen the money. So much mayhem ensues, and Cunningham, being the the bastard that he is, cruelly attacks Mary. McGregor and uh, and basically things devolve into open warfare between the army under Cunningham's command and the Highland outlaws that uh, rally around Rob and the resolution of the movie is is a tremendous sword fight one of the best ever committed to film where you have Cunningham, the the expert with the small sword, going up against the the raw strength and power of of Rob Roy wielding his broadsword, and that sword fight was choreographed by William Hobbs, who was famous for his fight choreography and, and specifically for his his uh, sword fighting choreography he choreographed uh, for the three musketeers and the duelist which is a great uh, a great i think it was ridley scott's first film and it depicts this uh, lifelong or many year long enmity between two soldiers in uh, napoleon's army and repeated duels and that's one of my favorite movies and and hobbs choreographed the the historically accurate duels in that and he choreographed this fantastic and very satisfying climactic fight scene between rob roy and and the vile archie cunningham and uh it all ends as it should and again, it's just a, a, a very satisfying movie in a very classical storytelling sense and uh, a really well done version of the Rob Roy McGregor legend. It will surely not surprise any of you to know that the, the legend of Rob Roy and the Rob Roy of the movie so nobly portrayed by Liam Neeson um, is a far cry from the historical actuality of Rob Roy McGregor. Because of that, I found the preparation for this podcast to be somewhat challenging. Not because the the real historical figure is less noble and less glamorous than the legend. That's pretty much par for the course in frontier partisan history. But it's very difficult to tease out uh, who the, the historical Rob Roy McGregor really was, even though there's a fairly significant record left behind. Um, that's in part because Rob Roy himself created a Rob Roy legend while he was still alive, um, largely to justify his actions. And uh, some later historians have pretty much gone along with with Rob Roy's interpretation of events. And uh, then more recent historians, as the case often is, have have revised and, and debunked 
the Rob Roy spin and uh, portrayed him essentially as a con man and a swindler. So uh, delving into that was was a little bit of a challenge and, and hard to pick apart. And uh, for me, it was a little bit of a thicket just because it was so legalistic. Um, despite the Highlands being in some senses a lawless land, there was a lot of lawyering going on. And uh, a lot of this story is around debt and property ownership and legal wrangling, which, um, as these things always do, just turn into a, a kind of untangleable knot and uh, doesn't lend itself to straightforward storytelling. So what I decided to do is kind of ponder a little bit on the, the, the gap between man and myth and talk a little bit about the legend in the way that it, it conforms to a lot of legendary about outlaws. So before we, we go there, I am going to give a little bit of, of historical context and a little bit of a sketch of, of Rob Roy's career. Um, the movie fairly accurately depicts who and what he was. He was born and raised in the Highlands in the late 17th century. And uh, the area in which he grew up and operated was in the Highlands, but close to the border with the Lowlands. So, um, And he was part of a, of a clan, the McGregors, that had actually been proscribed or, or outlawed, um, and their name disallowed from use because they were notorious as cattle thieves. And, uh, and Rob apparently did uh, engage in cattle raiding. And as we discussed in a previous episode, that was uh, a very common practice in the Highlands and in, in along the borders as well, uh, the English-Scottish borders as well, not even really regarded as theft. It was, uh, it was sort of, a, of an accepted uh, economic driver and sport in that time and place. But uh, Rob was a cattleman, which is a pretty classic frontier partisan's occupation. He, uh, he didn't just rustle cattle. He, he was a cattle broker and a cattle drover. And the business that he established was a, uh, a brokerage business wherein he would take the money of of well-heeled lords, including the Duke of Montrose, and uh, purchase cattle in the Western Highlands and, and further north, and drive them to market in Creef, which is uh, in Perthshire, and is what uh, was at that time the crossroads of a, of a whole bunch of droving trails. And uh, therefore, it became a cattle market. It was kind of like the Abilene or the Dodge City of, of Scotland. It's where the, the cattle drovers drove their cattle. And then buyers in, uh, from the south would come up and, and purchase them in what were called trysts, um, basically a, a cattle market fair. And uh, Rob Roy was, was very good at this. His... Uh, his reputation was was as an honest broker and a successful one, and he was good at moving cattle through rugged country and knew where to ford the streams. And just as in the American 
cattle drive era, uh, the the challenge was to get your cattle from point A to point B without losing a bunch of them or, or and or losing a bunch of weight off of them. And uh, he was successful at that. He had a side business, which sounds pretty nefarious. Um, he, he ran a protection racket. Basically, he would take a 5% cut of, of rents from farmers, uh, both lowland and highland, and uh, protect their cattle from theft by other raiders, uh, quote-unquote other raiders. I mean, seriously, it was other raiders, but also from his own depredations or his own wrestling. In other words, 5% and your cattle will be safe, or if they are rustled, I'll recover them. Uh, if you don't pay, all bets are off, and uh, your cattle are probably going to get rustled by somebody, <laughs> and that somebody might be named McGregor. Again, that's pretty nefarious uh, to our eyes, perhaps, but a, a very common practice, um, and uh, it's the origins of, of what we now know as blackmail. Again, a common practice in the Highlands, also a common practice on the Scottish-English borders. Um, that's, that's what happens in a, a land where uh, the arm of the law has little reach. And uh, there's actually a, that's why the Black Watch was, was formed, which we talked about in the episode about Scottish Highland soldiers. Um, it's one of the reasons that the Black Watch was was originally founded, so that there would be some sort of, of at least informal policing of cattle raiding. So, a protection racket was was not considered a dishonest or gangland sort of activity, even though it was certainly uh, by our standards a uh, would be considered a, a criminal activity. So Rob Roy was basically an honest enough man and uh, ran an honest enough business up until about 1712 when, for reasons that aren't entirely clear, probably associated with, uh, with a slump in the cattle market, and, uh, and probably he got himself overextended um, because you know everything is it's sort of like playing the stock market. Everything was being bought on credit, and uh, and if the the market didn't hold up, well, you know you you still you still owed your creditors, and uh, and you weren't pulling in the revenue that it was expected. So he got into some financial trouble in around 1711 or so, and uh, and his business started to fail. Now, according to the conventional tale, and this is the, the tale that was, was embellished and elaborated upon for, for the sake of the movie, he borrowed a thousand pounds, which was a great sum of money at the time, from Montrose and from other landholders in, uh, in lowland Scotland and on the fringes of the highlands in order to buy more cattle and, uh, and to make himself whole and to, uh, you know, to get himself out of these financial difficulties. And supposedly his chief herder, a man named MacDonald, 
absconded with the thousand pounds and uh and rob roy went after him to to search for him and and couldn't find him uh, of course in the movie you can't find him because archie archie cunningham has killed him but in in the uh historical legend as we'll call it uh mcdonald just disappears uh perhaps he went to america uh no one knows Rob tried to explain what had happened to Montrose, and uh, Montrose wasn't having it, um, and uh, evicted Rob from his lands and forced him into outlawry. And that is the way it's depicted in W.H. Murray's Life and Times of Rob, uh, actually, the title is Rob Roy McGregor, His Life and Times which was the book that inspired the movie and for many, many years was considered the definitive biography of Rob Roy. And this is how Murray describes Rob Roy's reaction to being, as he depicted it, hounded by the Duke of Montrose. He grasped the simple principle upon which he had to work and applied it methodically. For him, the king's law no longer ran. Its rejection had to be mutual. He would substitute for it his own conception of natural justice as he had been led to see it, amending it over the coming years in light of experience. Lowland society had outlawed him. Therefore, since he had no means of living or supporting dependents other than by the life of an outlaw, that should be his profession, and his prey those who had unjustly imposed the outlawry. The lands of Montrose were the prime target. So, in that depiction... Rob is, yes, an outlaw and becomes a cattle raider, but he has some justification. He's been unjustly persecuted. Montrose has been unreasonable in responding to the terrible circumstances that Rob found himself in and has outlawed him unjustly. And so, therefore, an outlaw he must be. Well, after the film came out, I... uh, Professor, professor Emeritus of Scottish History at the University of St. Andrews named David Stevenson did a pretty deep plunge into the National Archives, which interest in the film had led Scotland to open to scholarship. And he discovered a, a completely different take on what had happened between Rob Roy and Montrose. And it's a much less flattering and justifiable one than the one that that Murray had presented. In Stevenson's depiction, Rob Roy recognized probably in, in, in 1711 that his business was collapsing and began to make preparations essentially to swindle his creditors. And Stevenson writes... The first trace of Rob's preparation comes on 18 December 1711. Rob Roy then signed a disposition of his lands of Ardras and Craigistan. He transferred the lands jointly to John Hamilton of Bardowie and to Bardowie's brother-in-law and Rob's nephew, James Graham of Glengyle. In return, Rob was to receive payment of one penny Scots a year. The transaction remained secret, not registered in Edinburgh, for if it had become public, it would have immediately been obvious that he was trying to protect his estate from creditors. They would have moved in immediately and Rob's business would have collapsed. 
By keeping it secret, Rob could continue to raise money from customers, and only when customers began to realize that they had been swindled would the disposition be swiftly registered in official record, the Register of Sassines, which would give it added legal force. So he's saying that Rob Roy transferred property to his friends and relatives, knowing that he planned to not just default on on debts, but actually abscond with the thousand pound that that Montrose and others had lent him, and or invested in his business actually. So that's a different, <laughs> a whole different matter, and uh, I tend to think that Stevenson has the right of it. His 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 biography, uh, which is titled "The Hunt for Rob Roy: The Man and the Myths," is. Um, deeply researched and also quite well written. Um, interestingly, even though Stevenson is taking a pretty jaundiced view of Rob Roy as a hero, some sympathy kind of creeps through in his depiction. Um, it was a hard time for everyone except for the the very top uh, of the aristocracy. And Rob Roy was scuffling to try to, to keep his head above water, um, which a lot of us can can understand. And uh, you know he did he did some dishonest things in Stevenson's uh, estimation, but uh, he uh, he was nevertheless a likable, charismatic rogue. And uh, I, again, I tend to think that his his depiction is is pretty accurate. So the, the historical legend and Stevenson's harder take on Rob Roy sort of converged back together again. Um, Rob Roy did inaugurate a campaign of raiding on, mostly on Montrose's lands. And uh, the raiding consisted mainly of cattle theft, also the theft of grain, and sometimes the uh, illegal collection of rents. And... Uh, and Rob Roy, uh, in, in writings that he produced, was careful to depict any of these thefts as, as not really thefts, but just reclaiming what he was, was actually due. Um, one aspect of Rob Roy's life and career that the, that the movie kind of just really doesn't deal with um, because it doesn't fit into the format of, of a screenplay Uh was the the Jacobite intrigue that was constantly going on? It's uh, it's obliquely part of the plot with the the uh, the feud between the Duke of Argyle and and the Marquess of Montrose, but uh, it's not really dealt with in any direct fashion. And Rob Roy was in fact involved in uh, in the Jacobite uprisings of seventeen fifteen and nineteen. Um, not in ways that do him particular credit. He was almost certainly at heart a Jacobite, certainly a Jacobite sympathizer, um, but he did not commit himself to battle and probably provided some intelligence to the government forces or the Hanoverians um, during the, the 15 and the 19 which, uh, interestingly enough, are just sort of overlooked in the, the Scottish legends of Rob Roy. 
uh, Stevenson kind of takes this on in his lengthy epilogue essay, which talks about the, the man and the myth. Stevenson writes, From Rob's own perspective, sincerely believed in, and that of those who sympathized with him and helped him develop his legend, his actions as an outlaw were justified. Apart from his treachery to fellow Jacobites, which, being unforgivable, is ignored. Rob had indeed been oppressed and persecuted by Montrose. Let's not mention again the fact that this was a reaction to Rob defrauding him. Rob was a little man harassed by the great and arrogant dukes of Montrose and Athol, and bravely defied them, edited out the fact that he only survived through the help of other great men, Breadalbane and Argyle, not on his own. He stood for honor, well, he believed he maintained his honor, and self-respect. He didn't steal, but collected what was his by right. He had no taste for violence, and by scorning the great, those he wasn't groveling to at the time, almost by default, Rob was on the side of the poor. Now, obviously, that's a rather arch and sarcastic and somewhat snarky assessment, but I think probably pretty accurate and, and not unfair. Um, Rob was not uh, not the noble man as he's portrayed in the film by Liam Neeson, who exudes nobility. Um, but he was scrappy and charismatic and, uh, and damned if he didn't win the, the spin battle that uh, he was engaged in as much as he was engaged in in cattle raiding. Again, Stevenson. In the battle for hearts and minds, Rob Roy was the victor in his struggle with Montrose. He emerged with a reputation which led, with a bit of help from Sir Walter Scott, to his becoming a national hero. And he successfully branded Montrose for posterity with a sinister caricature image of aristocratic oppression, the perfect foil to contrast with Rob's own good qualities. Montrose may be denounced in the Rob Roy stories, but he's a vital part of them. Every hero needs a villain to battle against. It was Montrose who made Rob famous. And Rob was famous in his own lifetime, and that fame actually allowed him to get a pardon from King George I, which came just in time because he'd actually been arrested and was going to be transported to Barbados, and as we mentioned before, the uh, transportation to the Sugar Islands was pretty much of a death sentence for for Highlanders. So, uh, in 1727, he he was pardoned and was able to live out the rest of his life, which lasted uh, to 1735, uh, pretty much at peace, uh, doing a little cattle trading, doing a little farming. Um, he was always under the threat of eviction. He never never recovered his financial situation, but he did die a free man, which given the fact that he'd been an outlaw for close to 15 years, about 15 years, he uh, that's a, a pretty pretty stout accomplishment on Rob's part, even if it's not quite the noble accomplishment that is depicted in legend. So let's talk about legend a little bit. A few years back, I was working on a on what I thought was going to become a book titled Renegades, Rebels, and Rogues about uh, these sorts of outlaw heroes in a variety of cultures from Russian Cossack rebels in the 16th century to Salvatore Giuliani in 20th century Sicily, who was depicted in by uh, Mario Puzo in his book The Sicilian. 
It's remarkable how consistent these stories are over time and across a variety of cultures. There's something about the, the outlaw hero who is also a rebel against authority that really resonates with people. It just strums a chord deep, deep within the psyche. Um, there's a story about Rob Roy uh, giving a woman money to pay rent to the, the nasty Graham of Killarn. And uh, then after Killarn has collected her rent, Rob accosts Killarn, ambushes him, beats him, and steals the money. And there's an almost identical story told about Jesse James. And I think that there's a reason for that. The, the chord that is, is strummed here is something that, that stirs the sense of, of defiance against unjust authority. And I think people have an innate sense of justice. They know that the world is, uh, is not a level playing field and that the, uh, or maybe, maybe, maybe we should refer to it as a gaming table and the table's tilted. <laughs> and so we have a, an innate sense that, that, uh, that justice is a good thing and that there's not a whole lot of it in the world. And that sometimes a, a man who stands up and, and seeks justice on his own terms is, is what the situation calls for. And that's why I think the, the Sharp's screenplay for Rob Roy works so well. It just hits every one of those beats and, uh, and does it very well with, with that, that fantastically noble visage of, of Liam Neeson to, to carry it along. Eric Hobsbawm wrote a book, uh, gosh, many, many years ago now, uh, titled Social Bandits, which... I first read in college, and it looks at this phenomenon through a, a Marxist perspective, but uh, it's essentially argues that that cultures need to have these social bandits both in reality and in legend in order to believe that there is some chance of standing up against a corrupt and unjust system. And, uh, and Hobsbawm acknowledged the, the cross-cultural nature of this. And, you know, he talked about Pancho Villa and he talked about uh, Italian bandits in the, the 19th century. And, and uh, it's hard to, when you start, you know, picking at the, the actual history of these things, it's, it's hard to really define most of these people as social bandits. Um, or having much social conscience at all, um, they're criminals and of one kind or another. And Rob Roy, I think, I agree with Stevenson that, that he was essentially a, a swindler who, uh, who was pretty good at, at spinning out his, his own PR. And, uh, and, he did, in fact, resist the the mighty men, but it, but he had also given the mighty men a uh, considerable bit of, of provocation to to go after him. Similarly, you know, it's it's hard to to look at the actual Jesse James and see a, a heroic figure. Um, he was no Robin Hood, and uh, he was actually kind of a nasty piece of work. Same with uh, with Salvatore Giuliani. Um, 
Not nice people. Not good people. Not noble men. Pancho Villa. Um, I've done a great deal of, of study of Pancho Villa. And, uh, you know, he's an interesting case because he definitely had more of a, of a social orientation as he became a revolutionary leader. But uh, he, he was also uh, a bloody-handed killer by any estimation. And, uh, and some of, of his acts certainly qualify as atrocities. So it's really hard to find a noble bandit in, in reality. Same thing with pirates. And, uh, but we all love the stories. And it's curious to me as to why we love them so much. And uh, Lord knows I do. And I, I continue to respond to them even knowing the, the sometimes sordid truth of, of the history. I believe that it's true that we need some sense of hope that a, a man of action, a man of violence... Uh, can stand in the face of injustice and, if not make a difference, at least leave a mark. I think that's what we want. And I get it, I feel it, and I see it in Rob Roy. And knowing what I consider to be as close to the truth as we can get to Rob Roy, I'm still going to watch that movie and and be stirred by his noble struggle and his very satisfying duel with the vile Archie Cunningham. And I will still be moved by the Carter Burwell soundtrack. And nothing is going to shake that. Rob Roy, like other noble bandits, is an archetype. And out on the frontier of myth where the archetypes live, I can accept that and, and absorb those stories and, and believe them to be true. I once wrote, I live on history's flinty soil, yet regularly visit the frontier of myth. I try not to get them mixed up. And that's pretty much how I handle the likes of Rob Roy McGregor. But, uh, you know, there's another way of looking at this uh, that was articulated in, in my very favorite television show of all time, Black Sails, which recounts the Pirate Republic of Nassau, which existed at exactly the same time all of this action was going down with Rob Roy. And in the very final episode of the series... Captain Jack Rackham talks about story. A story is true. A story is untrue. As time extends, it matters less and less. The stories we want to believe, those are the ones that survive, despite upheaval and transition and progress. Those are the stories that shape history. And that is the story of Rob Roy McGregor. So that brings us to the end of our series on the Scottish Highlanders as a frontier people. It's been a, 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 an epic journey for me, really. I have greatly in, enjoyed delving into 
campus history, some of which I was, was pretty familiar with, some of which was new to me, wonderful to explore. Uh, there are other tales to tell, obviously, in this arena, and, uh, and I certainly will. Uh, some of them will probably appear as side trails, which is a new feature uh, exclusive to patrons on the Patreon page, the link to which is uh, in the show notes for this podcast. If you would like to support Frontier Partisans blog and podcast and get access to those side trail podcast episodes, uh, you can sign up there for $5 or $10 or $20 a month and uh, really appreciate the support. It's what, uh, what we're using to keep things going here at the Frontier Partisans Campfire. I uh, got two new new patrons just in the last couple days that I'd like to, to welcome to the campfire are Widden and Christopher West. Welcome and thanks for being here and uh, hope you enjoy the tales we spin out at this campfire. Uh, the next uh, the next series is going to delve into the Loyalist Frontier Partisans of the American Revolutionary War era. That's a story that's always been fascinating to me because uh, it's uh, they've been given they've been painted as the villains in the story, let's say, for the uh, in the American Revolution, men like Simon Gurdy who, to me, lived one of the most fascinating of American lives. Um, he's been depicted through almost all of history as a, a terrible race traitor and renegade and, and uh, a bloodthirsty traitor to his own, own people. And in recent years, he's been reassessed in, I think, very appropriate ways. And uh, he's an unlikely hero in my eyes. And uh, that will be the first podcast. It'll probably be a multi-parter because he led such a, a, a weird, wild, and varied life that I don't think I can, I can capture it in one shot. So I'm, I'm hard at work putting together that, uh, that series. And I'm really looking forward to, to sharing it with you. It's some of the, the meatiest work that I've done yet, I think. And uh, I'm finding it very exciting and satisfying and hope you will too. So give me a couple weeks to get that first episode together and uh, we'll see you down the trail.